Anybody watch the news this week? That's fun. Riots, divisive politics, the maddening effects of a pandemic, and injustice, and abortion, and culture wars, and the erosion of biblical values, and the societal ostracizing of Christians, and on and on and on and on. I think it's easy for us as Christians to feel beleaguered and like there's this tide that's against us and soon it will be over our heads and we'll be swallowed up. But you know, there is a greater current, a stronger current, and it's stronger than all the hostility in this world and it is our great hope For above the politics and above the pandemic and above the culture sits a king enthroned in glory. Christ, our king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And what systems of the government can do against him? What can they do? He is gathering all of these hostilities to make out of them his footstool. And so no matter our circumstances... Our faith and our hope will not be shaken, for they are in the King who sits enthroned. Today, as we look at our passage, two little verses, we're going to see these glories in them. And I want to walk through these four things with you today. First, God existed in perfect glory before all time, but was invisible. Secondly, God glorif- or Jesus glorified God by manifesting him before our eyes. Third, God glorifies Jesus by giving him a kingdom and a people and a name. And fourth, Jesus must be our Lord. And then in all of those things, as we step through it, I'm going to sprinkle into it, and we'll see that it's there. Sprinkled into all of it is the eschaton. And I'll tell you what that is, if you don't already know. Let's look at our passage today. I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading in verse 17 of First Peter chapter 1. And if you follow along with me. And if you called on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard your word, and so we ask that you do what you do and not let that return to you void, but it produce fruit in our lives, in our hearts right now, today. Let that fruit be faith and hope, and let it go out from here like leaven, leavening the whole loaf. Oh, Father, would you speak to us this morning and not let us sit there comfortable and unmoved? I ask in Christ's name, amen. 
when we began 1 Peter, right there in, in, in verse 2, we considered the word foreknowledge and how it related to the elect. For the letter of 1 Peter is addressed to the elect. Listen again to how that goes. And I'm going to remove that geographical parentheses. To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge, when used in this sense, is about relational knowledge, and a relational knowledge that existed long before this present moment, a love that's ancient. And so in other words, as we saw when we looked at those verses, that in eternity past, God has loved the elect. And if you are elect, therefore, God knew you and he loved you before he laid the foundations of the earth. And he elected for your salvation, for you to be saved. And Paul says a very similar thing. I'll read you those words from Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This salvific foreknowledge has nothing to do with us. God did not look upon us and say, what an amazing person. That's one that I will choose to save. No, he is just so generous with his love that he, according to the counsels of his own will, has chosen some to lavish his love upon. And he chose this long before the foundations of the world were laid. And these are called the elect. And these he has decided to unite with his son in a glorious adoption, in a glorious wedding. But there is a major difference between that foreknowledge and the foreknowledge that we find in our verse today. Look at that verse again. Verse 20. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. So God chose to foreknow us, even though in and of ourselves there was, there was nothing worthy of his great love. But it couldn't be more different with Jesus. And that's what makes these things so different, these foreknowledges, is that Jesus is worthy of the Father's love. He is so valuable and so precious that the Father simply couldn't do anything except love his Son. And we spent time considering that last Sunday. How deeply and powerfully the Father loves the Son. The Son is the very heartbeat of the Father. Listen to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, the Father speaks, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. How glorious is the Father's love for the Son. And there in Isaiah, hundreds of years before the Son became a man and was named Jesus, hundreds of years before he is called God's servant. The servant. Oh, there's such an implication there. He's a servant because he's obedient, because he serves the Father. He accomplishes the Father's will. So the foreknowledge of God isn't just about this eternal love, although it is, 
But it's also about this eternal obedience to the Father. The eternal foreknowledge of God is expressed in a plan, in a purpose. And the unfurling of the will of God happens upon the pages of history. According to this plan, the son was heading towards perfect, pure, self-sacrificial obedience where he exacted the father's will and most profoundly upon that cross on Golgotha. The father in death-defeating love, would raise his crucified son from the grave and give to him the greatest glories that he has to offer. But more on that in a bit. You can see that God the Father and God the Son have held nothing back in their love for one another, giving all that they have to express this great love, expressed as it is in history. It's glorious, it's beautiful. And they have exerted all of their power, all of their wisdom to demonstrate such a love. And the Holy Spirit does the same, although that is outside of our text this morning. The greatest human love that ever existed between a parent and a child is, is nothing, is a flickering match before the supernova that is God the Father loving God the Son and the Son loving the Father. There is, there is no greater conceivable force. Their love for one another and the Holy Spirit is the big bang out of which all other things have come into existence. And this love streams, streams into our passage, hopefully streams into our hearts this morning. The Father, as I've said, has loved the Son, foreknown Him, in the distant epochs of eternity past. But all of that is entirely invisible to our eyes. We would never know that. We could never comprehend it. And what can we do to know it? Shall we ascend into heaven and there see the majesties of this love on display? That's foolish talk. No one can ascend into heaven, but one from heaven must descend to show us these things, to reveal them to us. And this is exactly what happened. One from heaven has descended to show us these great glories. As John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. It should melt your mind in Trinitarian incomprehensibility. No one has ever seen God, the only God, but that only God who is at the Father's side has descended to make Him known. Who can know the perfection of God? Only God can know. And so God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known, has made him manifest. Colossians 1, 15, verses and 1, 15 and 19 through 20. Christ is the image of the invisible God, 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus has manifested the invisible God before our eyes. He manifested the Father as a suckling baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He manifested the Father as he broke bread and fed 5,000. And he reached out and he touched the untouchable. And when he wept for his friend, he manifested the Father as he was silent against accusation. And as the nails of injustice were hammered through his hands, he manifested the Father. And all this, all this, for the sake of the elect, as it says right there in verse 20, for the sake of the elect, doesn't that just reveal how humble and personal our God is? That he would leave glory and endure terrible suffering In order to make himself known, he wants to be known. He lives. God lives to express himself in all of his fullness. And in all of his fullness, he is perfectly good and perfectly humble and perfectly loving. The greatest desire at the center of God is to express his fullness. He says it over and over again. I do it. For my name's sake, I do it. For my glory, I will not share with another. And he just wants to lavish all creation with the knowledge of him. He's done all of this. As Peter writes, for the sake of the elect, So that we would believe. That's what verse 21 says. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God made himself manifest in Jesus Christ so that we would believe in God. And in no way does that mean so that we believe God exists. It means that we would believe in God as God is, in all of his kindness, in all of his generosity, in all of his goodness and faithfulness and justice, his sovereignty, in all that God is, we would know him in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus manifested God so that we would believe in God as God is. All that Jesus said and all that he did was so that we would see the Father as the Father is and love him and rivet our faith upon him and find in him an unshakable and living hope so that no matter how hostile the world is, we believe in God. This is why Jesus came and this is why he prayed right at the end of his 
life pre-crucifixion, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, the elect. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. How we should praise God for sending the Son, that through him we could know God, know him. God is not far off and unapproachable and and inconceivable, though he is. But he has become a man from Nazareth. Mary, his mother, his brothers, James, Jude, and others. He built tables, maybe. A man from Nazareth, God. But even more, even more, there was something going on behind all of that, something great and glorious hinted at here in verse 21. Glory beyond glory, glory that transforms all things, the glory for which all things are created, you included. We're finding it here in verse 21. Amazingly, Jesus knew that after he had perfectly manifested the Father and served as a servant should, as he perfectly obeyed God by manifesting him, God would bring him great glory. Again, from Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That glory is streaming into our verse today, verse 21. Remember, Jesus prays this only hours before the cross, only hours before the grave. And the cross and the grave were an overwhelming, almost overwhelming horror that stood before him. And this prayer that we see in John 17 is a prayer of faith. And he is trusting in faith that after he die, and after he become the scorn of the whole world, that God would turn once more to his beloved son and raise him from the grave and give him glory that existed before the foundations of the world. Christ had faith in his father. And how it pleased the father to answer his son's prayer. But to best understand how the Father answers Jesus' prayer, we need to take note of that, sti- that, that time stamp located in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. Do you see it? In the last time. It is not an empty phrase. 
What is Peter saying here? God became flesh in the last time. But why? Why does he include this little phrase, these four words right here? And what we find is that there is a mountain of theology and glory and scripture beneath these four words. And today we're just going to scratch the surface. We're going to scratch the scratching of the surface. Peter, right here, is referring to the eschaton. I know. What's that? It is the end. It is the things of the last time. And the study of the eschaton is called eschatology. Perhaps you have heard of it. Eschatology. And we are about to dive into some beautiful, glorious, deep eschatology. And what you come to realize is as you read the pages of the Bible, you realize that the whole book is eschatological in nature. But that's a parenthesis. All over its pages, the Old Testament points towards a time that is coming. A time of restoration, a time of terrible judgment, a time of the coming of a king and his kingdom. And these will all come at the prophesied eschaton, a word that doesn't exist in the Old Testament. But all the Jews so greatly anticipated the unfurling of the eschaton. The last time. But more than anything else, the eschaton is the time in which the Father brings his Son the fullness of glory. Now, the first thing to understand about eschatology is that it is not just about the final day of history the last judgment of humanity and those events that which would immediately precede it. And I think that, in fact, if we understand eschatology in that way, we're going to miss so much of what the Scripture is teaching, is communicating to us. And the power of verse 20 is going to be stripped. Look at verse 20 once more. I'm going to read it again. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. To know what we're talking about here, we've got to dive into eschatology and realize that Peter's talking about something immediate. That he's living in, he's claiming that God the Son was made manifest in the last time. That the King, the long-awaited Messiah, has come. And with him has come a great and glorious kingdom. Peter is claiming that he, the elect exiles to which he writes, and the readers even today of this letter are living within the eschaton. You may have questions. I know. Push pause. I think it becomes abundantly clear when we look back to some prophecies about that time And realize that they have come. Here's just one passage. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Indeed, 
The Lord is our righteousness. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. He is our righteousness. Additionally, as Galatians 3.7 discusses, all who have faith in Jesus Christ are sons of Abraham, become Israel. And in Christ, Israel dwells securely. When Christ ascended into heaven, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and was seated upon a great throne. So in glory, Christ now sits right now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The eschatological words of Jeremiah, which we just read, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, a few times I have mentioned this glory that's given to Jesus. As scriptures foretold, it was a glory that was given to the Messiah by the Father in the last times. It's related to the eschaton. And perhaps more powerfully than any other prophet, Daniel takes us there in chapter 7, where the Father gives glory to the Son. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Christ has ascended on the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days, and this kingdom and this dominion and this people have been given to him. The Father has given the Son dominion and glory and a kingdom. And the Father has given the Son a vast people from every nation, tribe, and tongue of which we are a part in this room today. And this people is called the bride, the church, true Israel. In a very real sense, The church is the living kingdom of God, the living glory of the Son. That's what we have been caught up in as the elect. And Peter's going to take us there even more deeply when we get into chapter 2. But there is one more great glory that the Father has given to the Son, which we must understand. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And think of how this relates to the other verses we've read. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What is the name above every name? Lord. This is the name that was given to Jesus. The Ancient of Days has given Jesus this name, Lord. At the name, Jesus, our Lord, every knee will bow, angels and demons, cherubim and seraphim, the 24 elders in all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. 
with one voice, all will declare that Jesus is Lord, he who manifested the invisible God. The eschaton is upon us. But doesn't it seem as we look around and we survey our world that there seem to be far more defiant fists raised than knees bowed? So what is happening? What is going on? And we need another, another category to understand these things. Another term, inaugurated eschatology. So here's some theological terms for you. Inaugurated eschatology. And this is an already not yet principle. Already not yet. It's critical for our understanding of Scripture. Like, already I am saved, but I am not yet completely saved, for that comes when Christ returns and my body is glorified. Already not yet. Already Christ is the King, but not yet have all his enemies been subdued. Already the kingdom is in our midst, yet it has not come in its fullness. Already Not yet. The already eschaton became true when Christ manifested God for our sake. The not yet eschaton will come when he returns in glory. And this is a critical understanding. And it's called inaugurated eschatology. Remember it. In a different kind of way, Jesus spoke about this same sort of thing. He didn't use the term inaugurated eschatology. Theologians have come up with that. But he talked about a mustard seed and leaven. Listen to him talk about leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. He's talking about a kingdom that starts small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it fills everything. So here in the depths of chapter uh, of verses 20 and 21, eternity is standing before us. We glimpse into the divine foreknowledge of eternity past and we see what's Coming in our eternal future, all eternity stands before us in these two little verses. And I think when we step back and look at it like this, we see that creation is a giant scroll upon which God is revealing his perfect plan for the Father to glorify the Son, and the Son to glorify the Father, and Spirit to glorify both. Look once more at the end of verse 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. We must believe in God as God is, knowing him truly as Christ has revealed him, as has manifested him. And this knowledge, with this knowledge, comes a particular and imperative response. And this is where things get rubber to the road. We must call him Lord. 
my friends, there is some sound from this direction. Do we know what that is? Okay. We must call Christ Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then the leaven of the eschaton is upon us. And we must bow our knee before the Lord. Far better to bow our knee today than with the demons on Judgment Day. And how do we bow our knee today? Before the judgment, Jesus told us. And when he appeared, he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe, or as Peter wrote in verse 21, which we just read, believe in God so that your faith and hope are in him. And now I want to quote from a musician named John Lucas. Crown him in your mourning, and crown him in your laughter, and crown him when all turns dark. Crown him when you bury, and crown him when you marry, and crown him when your faith finds a spark. Crown him for he is faithful, and crown him for he is worthy, and crown him for he is good. Crown him for his promises, cut through the blindness, O children, that have barely understood. The beauty has come, and the beauty has yet to come. And so we crown him with our every moment. We crown the King of Kings with our every moment and we seat him upon the thrones of our hearts with a response like that. The purpose for which Christ has come and made manifest the Father has come alive within us. With a response like that, the kingdom of God has burst into our hearts and has taken root here. That seed now grows. Jesus has become the Lord of our life. And one life at a time, that leaven spreads. You know, Jesus, our King, has given to each one of us a great and glorious task that accomplishes all these things that we have been talking about. Do you know where I'm going? All authority, he says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Those are the words of a king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The king has spoken. Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples. Leaven, you are supposed to leaven. A people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow their knees because of our testimony. Do you understand the urgency in that? A people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow their knee because of our testimony. And if not by our testimony, then what? And you know the answer. 
and is horrifying. As countless millions pass each day from this life, how urgently, how urgently we should be proclaiming that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe. To tarry, to wait, to let someone else do it is shameful. And it does not honor our king. Jesus sits enthroned. He has made the Father known. He has shared in our sufferings so that we can share in His glory. Repent, believe, and go. Father God, I pray that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to do all these things to rightly know you as we see you in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us eyes that would see. Lord, make our faith strong, unshakable, our hope living and active, driving us forward. And Lord, help us to live in obedience to these great realities that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. This kingdom is advancing. You promise it. Use us, Father, to advance it. Use this church, Emmanuel, to advance the kingdom in the Mohawk Valley. Lord, make your son glorious through this humble little place in Washington Mills. In Jesus' name, amen.